Welcome to the third season of Pushing Pediatrics, the ultimate podcast for pediatric physical therapists studying for the pediatric board specialty exam. We remain dedicated to providing guidance and support to pediatric physical therapists looking to excel in their field. We understand the challenges you face while studying for and passing the certification exam, but with our expert guidance and unwavering support, we are confident that you can achieve your goals. So let's dive into this journey towards becoming a board certified pediatric physical therapist together. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put in the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content, and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we've stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Welcome back. So continuing on with our plan, Chapter 5 from Campbell outlines the principles of motor learning. Some things to think about. Learning needs to be active, especially those with disabilities. Unlike adults, children are usually learning these skills for the first time. Hence, they require a context of development to acquire these age-appropriate skills. So this can be achieved via a triad of the person, the task, and the environment in which the task is performed. Neuroplasticity is enhanced when the tasks are meaningful to the performer. So just remember that. They're enhanced when the tasks are meaningful to the performer. I was going to say you can say that again, but you can probably still say that again. It needs to be meaningful. There is no universal method of intervention as every patient has a unique capability and unique limitations. So as a therapist, you need to take into account these individual characteristics, the specific features of the tasks or activities that are needed, as well as the environmental context where these skills will be carried out when planning your interventions for your child. So now kind of thinking about this information in the context of the exam, you want to make sure that you're taking these things into account when you're working through case studies and questions. Being able to think through these concepts will really support your test taking. Let's talk a little bit about learning motor skills. It involves the acquisition of two types of knowledge. You have your explicit knowledge and your implicit knowledge. Explicit knowledge refers to the ability to verbally describe a skill, while implicit knowledge refers to the ability to perform a skill without being able to verbally describe it. These types of knowledge are commonly assessed based on how accurately and quickly a person can verbally describe or physically demonstrate a skill. The book gives a great example of describing how to tie a shoe and actually tying a shoe. Motor skills involve acquiring both explicit and implicit knowledge. There are a few different models to learning, but the book really focuses on Gentile's two-stage model of learning. In the initial stage, there's a little more trial and error. There are inconsistencies, trial to trial, 
and there are, of course, unsuccessful attempts. The second stage involves adapting the movement pattern to meet the demands of the task and the environment, bringing it all together, and of course, making it more functional. The book then kind of moves on to talk about that generalization. So obviously, the goal of PT treatments is for the child to be able to generalize the things that you're doing. We want the learning to evolve over time and allow the child to use their skills in everyday life. The factors that influence this generalization include the similarity of skills, the context in which the skill is performed, and the cognitive processes required. More generalization occurs when there is increased similarity between all of these factors. So we can improve generalization by creating an environment as similar to possible as the place that we want these motor skills to be occurring, or even better, actually practicing the skills in the environment like their home. Moving on to presenting information on motor skills. So really, we can either tell them how to do it verbally, or we can demonstrate it. Demonstration or modeling can be helpful because it engages mirror neurons and gives visual information on the movements. The book also highlights that research has shown that motor skills improve when novice learners observe other novice learners. Verbal instructions are an alternative to demonstration, but obviously it's important to consider the person's capacity to remember and think about the instructions. Instructions should be concise and limited in number, particularly when working with children or individuals with limited comprehension. I'm sure we've all been wordy with our verbal instructions or cues before, and we get deer in headlight stares. I know I definitely have. Research has shown that an external focus directing attention to the intended movement outcome typically leads to better learning compared to an internal focus, which focuses on the movements themselves. An example of this is instructing a child to focus on pushing forward the platform they stand on rather than just pushing their feet forward can lead to a better learning of a dynamic balance task. Another example is teaching a child how to ride a bicycle. Instead of instructing the child to focus on the movements of their legs and their feet while pedaling, which could be an internal focus, the person can direct their attention to the intended movement outcome, which is to maintain your balance and move forward on the bicycle. You might say something like, focus on keeping your balance and moving forward on the bicycle. Imagine you're riding towards your favorite park. By providing this external focused instruction, the child's attention is directed towards the goal of maintaining balance and moving forward rather than getting caught up in the specific movements of their legs and their feet. This external focus allows the child to naturally coordinate their movements and achieve the desired outcome. I actually just worked on this with my oldest son, and he was really struggling. I mean, we've probably been working on riding a bike for over a year. And I definitely was caught up in trying to tell him what to do with his feet and getting them on the pedals. And then what we finally did is we took the bike, we lowered the seat, and we made it so it could kind of almost be like a strider bike, but it still had the pedals on it. And basically, we just told him to move the bike forward with his feet. And when he felt like he was balanced to just go and keep riding and he learned to ride a bike in a day. So it's interesting because I actually hadn't written this episode. This was probably a couple months ago, 
But when I look at it, we actually had kind of done this. I had taken the focus away from what he was doing with his feet and just kind of encouraged him to move the bike forward however he wanted. And then once he felt balanced, he did whatever he needed to do with his feet all on his own. The choice of demonstration versus verbal is obviously going to depend on the skill and the learner's familiarity with the activity and whatever that learner needs. Certain people are going to need certain things from or certain kids are going to learn in a way that is best for them. Moving on to discussing feedback. Feedback plays a crucial role in the motor skill learning process. It provides essential information to the learner about their performance during or after an activity. And generally, there are two types of feedback, the first one being knowledge of results, which refers to feedback about the outcome of performing a skill, and then knowledge of performance, which focuses on the movement characteristics that led to the performance outcome. There is a debate about whether feedback should focus on errors or correct aspects of performance. Research suggests that both types are valuable, but it seems like error information is a little bit more effective for facilitating skill learning, while information about correctly performed aspects serves as a motivational role by indicating that progress is happening. And that kind of encourages our learner to keep trying. So they kind of affect different parts. So in regards to which errors or components to focus on, really pick one aspect or component of the child's performance to simplify the feedback process and keep it within the learner's memory and attention limits. Which error to address is best is really based on part of the skill that is most critical for achieving the performance goal. Let's say you're working on throwing to a target. Maybe you observe that your patient consistently struggles with their arm position during the throwing motion, and you know that arm position is a critical component for achieving this performance goal of an accurate and effective throw. So you decide to provide your feedback specifically addressing the child's arm position. You focus on correcting and improving the child's arm position by providing targeted instructions and guidance. Then you may say something like, remember to keep your elbow up and aligned with your shoulder as you throw the ball. This will help you generate more power and accuracy. The book gives a few more examples here to help you solidify these concepts. Remember, we've kind of talked about two examples are really what help you to kind of learn and understand the material as well as apply it. Take a couple of these examples and just either stick them in the back of your brain or maybe put them on your daily study guide. Another underlying constant is that we want the kids to be active participants in the process. In our example above, Sheila moving the child's arm through the motion isn't a great way for learning to occur. The frequency of giving feedback is important. Research suggests that providing error correction feedback after every practice trial, so that would be 100% frequency, is not really optimal for learning motor skills. I am the worst at this. I am terrible at being quiet, and this is something I'm definitely working on in my clinical practice. So a less than 100% frequency of feedback is really the more effective way to do it because it encourages the active learning strategies and it prevents the learner from becoming kind of dependent on your feedback. In summary, feedback should focus on errors and correct aspects of performance with a priority given to the most critical parts of the skill. It's important to provide feedback at a frequency that promotes active learning and prevents dependency. 
And then Campbell highlights the key challenge for therapists here is that we really need to monitor how feedback is influencing the performance, and then we need to modify accordingly. Nevertheless, even within a given patient, the optimal feedback frequency may vary depending on the tasks being learned. We also need variation in therapy sessions, right? We talk about this frequently. Random practice schedules result in better learning compared to those blocked practice schedules. Random practice schedules create a higher amount of that contextual interference, so those memory or performance disruptions, which enhances learning. Then we also have practice specificity. That is also important. It highlights the importance of comparable conditions to perform the skills in. Another consideration is how much time is devoted to practice within and across sessions. Massed practice involves longer active practice and shorter rest periods, while distributed practice involves shorter practice sessions with more rest periods. Research suggests that shorter and more practice sessions are preferred for optimal learning outcomes. We also need to consider that whole versus part practice, which depends on the complexity and organization characteristics. So skills that are low in complexity and high in organization are best practiced as whole skills, while skills that are high in complexity and low in organization should be practiced in parts. The progressive part method is a common strategy for progressing individual parts. This is kind of obvious, but this is where you're going to practice the skill in increasing size of sequences of parts until the whole skill is performed. I found this all a little confusing, so I actually asked ChatGPT to give me some examples of each. So an example of a skill that is low in complexity and high in organization is in brushing your teeth. So brushing your teeth involves a relatively small number of parts, such as holding the toothbrush, applying the toothpaste, brushing the teeth in a specific pattern, and rinsing out your mouth. The skill has a clear and organized sequence of steps that need to be followed to effectively clean your teeth. So the temporal and spatial relationships between the parts of the skill are well-defined, Since brushing your teeth is low in complexity and high in organization, it is best practiced as a whole skill. The individual steps of holding the toothbrush, applying the toothpaste, brushing the teeth, yada, 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 are performed together in a coordinated manner. So practicing the skill as a whole allows for the development of the necessary coordination, timing, and sequencing required for effective teeth brushing. Obviously, too, it doesn't really help when you practice brushing your teeth if you are practicing the brushing before you put on the toothpaste. Like, that doesn't make sense, right? Like, you're not doing anything there. So it has a sequence of events that kind of need to go into place. An example of a skill that is the opposite, so high in complexity and low in organization, is playing a musical instrument such as the piano. The skill of playing the piano is considered high in complexity because of the numerous parts and the level of attention and coordination required. However, it's low in organization because the parts of the skill do not have a clear and fixed temporal or spatial relationship. The pianist has to navigate through different sections of the music, adapt to changes in tempo, dynamics, and articulation, and make decisions on phrasing and interpretation. Given the high complexity and low organization of playing the piano, it's beneficial to practice this skill in parts. 
Breaking down the skill into smaller components allows the pianist to focus on specific techniques, fingerings, or musical passages. For example, practicing scales or specific sections of a piece separately can help develop technical proficiency and address challenging areas. By practicing in parts, the pianist can gradually integrate the components and work towards playing the entire piece with fluidity and musicality. Overall, playing an instrument like the piano exemplifies a skill that is high in complexity and low in organization. Practicing in parts allows for targeted improvement in specific aspects of the skill, leading to overall proficiency and mastery of the instrument. So in a very broad summary, scheduling and sequencing of activities in pediatric physical therapy should focus on activity and participation, not body structures and function. They should also involve caregivers and incorporate practice variability. This is how therapists can optimize learning and performance outcomes in children. The chapter moves on to discuss motor learning more specific to pediatric rehab. It is the first place you see a bubble chart. So as we continue on this year and as you continue on in your process, you may see this more. But this bubble chart in Campbell illustrates the level of evidence supporting the efficacy of various interventions for cerebral palsy. It comes from the Novak article called State of the Evidence Traffic Lights 2019, which is a must study and must know. For this chart, the size of each bubble represents the number and quality of studies. The vertical position indicates the resulting level of evidence and the color corresponds to the evidence alert system. So green indicating interventions that should be implemented into clinical practice, yellow suggests possible implementation, and red advises against implementation. Again, can't say enough how important it is for you guys to review that article. It's definitely something to put on your list. The interventions at the highest part of the chart involve active engagement from the participant, problem solving within the environment, and intensity. This is a huge point. Active participation with intensity. Know this information for not just the exam, but also for your clinical practice as well. You're going to hear task-oriented training come up frequently. This is a form of motor learning approach focused on activity limitations. The tasks must be challenging and meaningful to the performer, and active participation is crucial. I feel like this just keeps coming up. These foundational concepts are essential to keep in mind when approaching case studies, practice exams, and the actual exam. By asking yourself key questions such as whether the intervention is meaningful to the patient, challenging, and promotes active participation, you can ensure that way you're addressing the core principles of effective therapy. This is really just the beginning. We're going to return to these concepts time and time again to help guide you through the next months. And don't forget about those case studies in the ebook of Campbell. Um, they're a very valuable tool to help solidify the concepts. We keep talking about the ebook and the case studies, but they are very, very helpful. So moving on to another chapter that's just packed with information, we have chapter six, which is on that musculoskeletal development. 
and adaptation. We're going to go through an overview of the musculoskeletal system, and we're just going to try to hit the main highlights of this chapter rather than describe each and every section. Of course, we always encourage you guys to read the full chapters. Our job is really just looking at this and trying to pick out some key concepts to help and help you study and remember things. Make sure you're reading all of Campbell, obviously. So we're going to start by giving a quick overview of muscle development. In the developing embryo, somites form along the neural tube that eventually differentiate into dermis, skeletal muscles, and vertebrae. Progenitor cells have the ability to differentiate into many different types of cells, and these will tend to differentiate into primary or secondary myotubules. A motor unit begins with the development of the neuromuscular junction. Primary myotubes are seen at approximately five to seven weeks of gestation and will differentiate into type 1 muscle fibers. The three types of type 2 muscle fibers primarily develop from secondary myotubes at about 30 weeks of gestation. From 18 weeks of gestation until several months post-term, synaptic elimination occurs until each neuromuscular junction is innervated by one axon. During the last half of gestational growth, the number and size of muscle fibers increase so rapidly that most of the skeletal muscle is formed by birth, and then by the end of the first year of life, the remaining muscle fibers are developed. A muscle tendon unit, or an MTU, is composed of muscle fibers, two cytoskeletal systems within the muscle fibers, the supporting connective tissue within and around the muscle belly, and dense regular connective tissue of the tendon, which connects the muscle to the bone. Membranes at the MTU tend to be folded to reduce membrane stress, and disuse atrophy causes less folds. So this may explain why atrophied muscle has a higher risk for tears. So moving on to the passive length tension curve, which we're all kind of familiar with, but the book does a nice job explaining it. And there are some nice charts in the book to review the concept as well. So really, it reflects muscle tension that is produced when a muscle is stretched from its resting position to the maximal length. Maximal isometric force is produced near the resting length of an isolated muscle and decreases as the muscle is lengthened or shortened relative to the resting length. Remember our manual muscle tests for this to remember the resting length of a muscle because that's when you're going to get the most force production. And like I said, there's really good charts in the book to review this. The book goes over some force and length adaptations in the MTU. Some key pieces of information from this section include things like immobilization, which can result in muscle weakness and atrophy, spasticity, which we all know is that increased muscle tone and excessive stiffness. So there is an increase in sarcomere length here, which results in a decreased overlap of actin and myosin, which decreases that force production, right? We want to have a good overlap of that actin and myosin. That's going to help with force production. So in spasticity, we don't have as good of overlap. Also in spasticity, there's a lower number of in-series sarcomeres with an overstretched length in the individual sarcomeres. So again, this just causes the muscle to be shorter and have a longer tendon than normal, which further results in that muscle weakness. So now we're going to kind of shift away from muscle for a little bit, and we're going to talk some more about bone. 
bone arises from the mesodermal layer of the embryo, similar to how muscle does. Mesenchymal cells condense to form templates of the skeleton. And then after this point, both endochondral ossification and intramembranous ossification take place. Bone development progresses most rapidly in the prenatal period, with the diaphyses almost ossified by the time of birth. Premature babies tend to have osteopenia or bone fragility, so something to definitely keep in mind. Most bones are fully ossified by age 20 years, except for a few bones. Skeletal adaptation can be functional throughout development. Wolf's Law states that bone will adapt to the loads under which it was placed. So that's something to really think about, especially when we're thinking about things like cerebral palsy. The Huter-Volkman principle states that excessive static loading will cause bone material to decrease, which can be detrimental to bone integrity and strength. So typically, we see the following changes in lower extremity bone over time. That newborn, you're going to have moderate genuverum. And then six months, you're going to have a little bit less genuverum. And then at around one and a half years of age, the legs are going to look more straight. And then around two and a half years, we might start to see more of that physiological genuvalgum. So that knock need posture in the child that's around two and a half years old. The hip is also a hot topic in pediatric PT, specifically with torsion inversion. Torsion is the normal amount of twist present in a long bone. Antitorsion is when the head of the femur is rotated forward in the transverse plane relative to the femoral condyles. Version is the position of the segment relative to a plan of motion. Antiversion is when the head of the femur is positioned anteriorly in the acetabulum and results in a position of thigh external rotation. Retroversion is when the head of the femur is positioned posteriorly in the acetabulum, which results in thigh internal rotation. Sometimes I feel like antitorsion and antiversion are kind of used like the same, but they're actually different. Yeah, I don't so understand we... that. Even when I Google it, you don't get a lot of great information. So be really cautious about using Google because I feel like people use those terms interchangeably and they are not. They are different and their effect on the leg position is different. Yeah, absolutely. So make sure you know the difference between those two. So at birth, newborns have 30 degrees of antitorsion. 60 degrees of antiversion, and 30 degrees of external rotation. Both normal version and normal torsion are defined at about 12 degrees. There is a figure, figure 6.9, that has some good pictures to help you remember this information as well. So maybe something good to put on your study guide. Okay, so make sure you're going back and reviewing Campbell for this as well, and make sure you understand how you're going to assess this from a clinical perspective. We've already reviewed that knee development earlier, but just a really quick review at birth, we are the the position of the knees is in that genuverum. Then around one to two years old, we're in more of a neutral alignment. Then at that two to four years old, we're, it's very common to see that genuvalgum. So if you're seeing a lot of genuvirus between two and six years old, that might be something to be thoughtful of and might, re might require a referral to orthopedics. At the ankle, infants are born with a flexible flat foot. 
expect the development of a medial longitudinal arch between two to six years, according to the book, and around 10 years, the medial longitudinal arch should be structurally mature. Making sure we understand examination and measurement of all of these different components. So using things like range of motion, obviously, uh, we're going to do our strength testing, which, of course, the gold standard is a handheld dynamometer based on evidence compared to manual muscle testing. I think most people don't have a handheld dynamometer. And so, of course, manual muscle testing is still really, really good. And then we work in pediatrics. So even on top of that, making sure we understand just general functional ways that we can measure strength is really, really important. Table 6.1 from Campbell describes the positions you should use when you're going to use a handheld dynamometer. All right, so we're going to wrap up this episode today by going over some musculoskeletal interventions. So let's start off with stretching. There's not a whole lot of evidence to support or refute stretching for neurologically impacted muscles. However, long duration stretching, such as using an orthoses or a night splint, may be beneficial to prevent further contractures. Serial casting can also be beneficial for idiopathic toe walkers based on a literature review, and it may also be beneficial to reduce or eliminate early contractures in children with CP. Casting protocols vary, so we're not going to give an exact protocol here, but take a look at the book because they can give some examples for you as well. Strengthening exercises have proven to be beneficial in improving basic strength and potentially function when paired with gait training in children with CP. And in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, like Sheila said earlier on in the episode, submaximal concentric contractions are recommended, but eccentric exercises are not recommended. Ingrain that in your brain, please. Weight-bearing can be beneficial to improve hip development and stability, which we've talked about and gone over. And you can begin a supported standing program at 9 to 10 months corrected age, which kind of correlates to when standing is developmentally appropriate. Thank you for tuning in to Pushing Pediatrics today. We hope you found the information shared valuable and applicable to your test preparation and daily practice. Remember, success is a journey and we're committed to supporting you every step of the way. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your colleagues. Until next time, you've got this.